Hi, my name's Noreen Jamil, and this is... Emily Kate Stevens. Both of us have been diagnosed with long COVID. And we've created this podcast dedicated to the condition. Welcome to the Long COVID Sessions. So, Emily, when we spoke last, you were not really in a good spot in terms of your health. How has the week been for you? It's been really rubbish. I think I was just heading downwards when we last spoke, and it's it's been a full week of migraines. Of I feel like I've got this axe going through the left side of my head pretty much constantly, and I thought that I was over that. I thought that I had got better if I compared this to my big dip around Christmas that was six weeks I do think that this has not impacted my autonomic nervous system in the same way I I don't have the shakes and I don't have all of my muscles trembling and I don't have that adrenaline rush so I think the dips are, are less bad but this one is quite prolonged and is it just your head or are you, do you have other symptoms? The most debilitating thing is my head, but my stomach's a, a real mess. The nausea, I've actually been vomiting and the constriction in my throat. I, I think it might be partly histamine driven because I know the pollen count's been high. My eyes stream when I go out of the house. So I don't necessarily think that is long COVID. I think that is prior histamine issues but I just wonder whether there's a correlation between things like the high pollen count and an onset of my long COVID symptoms. My tinnitus is horrendous as well it's really particularly bad when I'm wearing headphones. (laughs) Kind of neurological and gastro. And I've had I've had quite funny little heart dances as well which is weird and my heart rate is incredibly low when I lie down not when I'm sleeping when I lie down it's sort of around 50 and my oxygen saturation is quite low so it does feel when I wake up in the morning like my brain has somehow been starved of oxygen it just it's horrendous honestly like I drank a litre and a half of vodka every night hopefully this crash is not going to last that long at least we know that we just have to ride it out and then we have some good days so how was your week I'm Not in the middle of a crash. Uh, I was a few weeks ago and I had that funny turn. I had another one this week, similar, but it wasn't as bad and I paid less attention to it this time. I'm a bit dizzy, so I'm putting it down as one of my new symptoms. Mm, My dizziness is bad, even when I'm lying down. Yeah, it's weird. It was, yeah, it was early evening. I had to lie down and I wasn't feeling very good. And so I just kind of lay down and tried not to let things get too bad. One of the symptoms that I'm finding quite stressful at the moment is I'm forgetting things, like names. Mm. And I didn't have any brain fog for the first year. Nothing. No, I remember like, you saying. It was one of those things that I was quite grateful. I didn't have headaches, I didn't have brain fog. Now I'm getting a few headaches, but not like major migraines, just kind of a dull headache that kind of lasts in the morning. And I find myself forgetting names once in a while. It's worrying, but I had a brain MRI and my brain looks okay, so I don't know. I think it could be just tiredness because I've got insomnia again. My hair is falling out in handfuls at the moment. Is it? Yeah, and I'm putting that down to the really bad crash I had that was like five weeks. Yeah, I think it's the body shutting off non-essential non-essential services. (laughs) (laughs) Um. So that follows a little bit behind the does, yeah. that really bad bout that you had. Losing hair is okay, but after the first lot of COVID, I lost loads. And so now that I'm losing more, my hair's getting really thin. Is it? Yeah. So that's a bit depressing. But I have these bouts of breathlessness as well, which oh, I didn't yeah. have previously. Where I can be sitting and not really not doing anything and then suddenly feel quite breathless. For no reason. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? That it comes out of the blue and it's not after, it's not for a many exertion or standing up no. or... No. So I definitely think that, you know, maybe there's some tiny clotting going on. Mm. 
Each week I have something new to worry about. It's either my heart or my brain. I know, it's really the gift that keeps on giving, isn't it? Just yes, every week major organs. adds you something else to think about. Keeps us on our toes. This week we spoke to Dr. Alex Schmeyer, who's a cardiovascular specialist. And he has been for a long time studying the endothelium. And obviously from what you've just been saying about potential clots from a lot of the people that we've spoken to, the endothelium is an area of great interest. We wanted to really get into what's going on in our endothelium, which is the layer that surrounds our veins, which is potentially one of the causes of these the clotting that people with long COVID is said to have. This really wonderful doctor who's spent many years looking at the vascular system and the endothelial layer and how it plays into cardiovascular issues, but also other issues. And long COVID, some seems to have come along and damaged our endothelium, according to some research. And we follow the work of Marisha Pretorius and all this team clots and those people that are really into looking at microclots. But we really wanted to get into the science behind it that takes a step back and a longer medical review, clinically medical review of what's going on. We are aware that you have not led studies into long COVID, but what we wanted to do is we wanted to speak to someone and get a history of what COVID-19 is doing in terms of the vascular system. Because from the people that we speak to within the cohort, as well as within the experts, there is so much discussion of microclots, clotting, endothelial damage, and I think what we'd like to do is get a handle on that medically. I think this is like one of those excellent examples of the uh, the blind person feeling the elephant that based on your prejudice and how you approach clinical problems, you're going to have a different perspective. So I'm a cardiologist and vascular medicine physician, and the research that our lab focuses on is on how endothelial cells, the cells that line our blood vessels, become dysfunctional and promote blood clotting in disease. And so that's the window with which I approach uh, problems like this. Yeah, that's your lens for the world. Exactly. And so I think most of my input and opinions uh, are based on that lens on this problem. But I think one thing that's clear is that it is a very complex and multifaceted problem. And uh, and so there's not just one explanation. Um, which, which I'm, I'm sure you all agree. Mm-hmm. But the beauty of the vasculature is that it supplies every organ. So, you know, it's the highways and the local roads to every organ in the body. So if, if they're not working well, then all those organs will, will not work well. And so perhaps it is a uh, common link to explain a lot of the multi-organ system dysfunction in COVID-19 and post-acute sequelae of COVID. Yeah, because it can explain the systemic, the whole body, whereas a lot of the other parts that we look at or symptoms that we look at, it's hard to explain how it affects so many different systems. Precisely. The work that that we did in COVID, we obtained samples from patients really during the first wave of the pandemic, around the time when we were seeing a lot of blood clotting in these patients. Mm. And we looked at markers of endothelial cell dysfunction, so activation of these cells that line our blood vessels, and normally are incredibly anticoagulant, meaning that their job, as they were assigned, is to allow blood to keep flowing. And so they are an incredibly anticoagulant surface and to, to help maintain the continuous flow of blood, and that's required for proper gas and nutrient exchange across the capillaries of the lung or in any organ in the body. And what, what we found when we measured several proteins that are associated with abnormal endothelial cell function in patients with extremely severe COVID, so patients who are in the intensive care unit versus patients who were moderately ill, hospitalized, but, but not on a ventilator, versus patients who had COVID but were well enough to be treated at home yeah. versus, versus healthy controls, was that basically markers of endothelial dysfunction increased, they scaled with disease severity. And that's something that several other groups have demonstrated as well. 
But it is also an interesting point because a lot of the studies at that early phase only looked at the hospitalised. So actually, when I looked at your study, I was interested to see that you had done it in varying severity of COVID. Right. I think that was one of the strengths of our study. And certainly another question apropos to yours is how much of this is unique to COVID-19 versus someone who's in the hospital with a severe viral respiratory illness? And I think this is still an open question because we don't have the same volume of historic controls for, say, severe influenza or other viral diseases. One perspective might be that, you know, simply we're seeing all of this acute disease with COVID and uh, these long-term sequelae simply because we've never seen this many hundreds of thousands of people in an intensive care unit with the same illness. And so when that happens, things are going to emerge on a larger scale than we've ever seen before. And I think that's important to keep in mind because there certainly are similarities between COVID and other severe respiratory diseases. And when the next pandemic comes around, it's something that is different than COVID. I think this disease has shed light on vascular dysfunction in general, on how blood clotting can contribute to disease at the microscopic, the microvascular level. And and so we're going to be better prepared for the next pandemic. What is a biomarker that you look for when when you're looking at damage on the endothelial? Because everyone's talking at the moment about trying to find microclots in their blood and how difficult it is to find those clots. For example, you need a special microscope. What do you look for when you look for damage and you say it incrementally increases with the severity of disease? So there's several markers. One of them is this protein called von Willebrand factor. Mm, oh, and, and, and that, um, so endothelial cells, they're basically, like I said, their job is to maintain blood flow. And so they have all of these anticoagulant proteins. So proteins that prevent blood clots on their surface. And, and we'll talk about some of those in a second. But they're sort of armed with the ability to activate and actually promote blood clots in response to inflammation or in response to an invading pathogen. And that mechanism is probably evolutionary conserved because when there's an invading pathogen, a natural response may be to form a blood clot and sort of wall off that pathogen from being able to invade systemically. But when this process is unchecked and can take over the entire lung instead of just a part of it, then the clotting may spin out of control. So von Willebrand factor is this protein that when an endothelial cell is responding to inflammation, it secretes this protein. And it's basically a very long, sticky molecule. And platelets, which are circulating in our blood, bind to the von Willebrand factor and and slow down. And actually, that's sort of the first adhesive layer upon which a big platelet plug forms and accumulates. So von Willebrand factor is a key uh, driver of blood clotting. And when its levels are higher in the blood, that means that these endothelial cells are activated by some sort of inflammatory process to secrete this protein. So that's one marker that we've shown and other groups have shown scales with increasing severity of disease. And with regards to long COVID, some studies have demonstrated that von Willebrand factor may persist and being persistently elevated in patients several weeks after their acute disease. And whether it tracks with the symptoms of long COVID, I think, remains to be shown. But that's one marker that people are looking at to determine if there's persistent endothelial damage long term. That's fascinating, honestly. And is that something that you can measure that protein potentially months down the line? What's nice about von Willebrand factor is that it's it's very easy to measure and it can be done in, in a clinical laboratory or also in a research laboratory. It can be measured in the same person over time at different time points. And there's no reason why we couldn't continue to measure it as a marker of endothelial cell dysfunction. And that's just one example. So there are several proteins, as I mentioned, that have an anticoagulant function. Mm. One of those is called thrombomodulin. Another is called tissue factor pathway inhibitor. And another one is called the protein C receptor. But I think thrombomodulin has been 
the one that has best been studied in COVID and verified. And so that protein sits on the endothelial surface. And its normal job is to turn this very procoagulant or pro-blood clotting enzyme called thrombin into an anticoagulant enzyme. And so that's a really special job that a healthy endothelial cell can do. But when endothelial cells are inflamed, that protein thrombomodulin is cut off of the endothelial cell surface. So other enzymes basically chew it up and clip it off, and then you can measure it circulating in the blood. And then also endothelial cells, and some of our research showed this, is actually the plasma from patients with active COVID-19 suppresses the production of new thrombomodulin in the endothelial cell. So that's one protein that we see circulating at higher levels in people with more severe disease, and other groups have demonstrated this as well. So are you saying that's not present in the blood or it's just present in much lower levels if it it has not been activated in that way? It's present in much lower levels. You can always find these proteins circulating because cells are constantly turning over these proteins. Mm. But in people with active disease um, like COVID-19, the levels are much higher and, and they're higher in people who wind up not surviving their illness versus those who do. That's you know, another protein that shows that, well, these endothelial cells have lost their anticoagulant function um, by measuring this circulating protein. And is that, again, something that can be measured in a clinical or a research lab, or is it a complicated test? Not as straightforward as von Willebrand factor, a little bit less commonly measured, but it certainly can be measured in a research setting very easily. Okay. The thing is, with the long COVID, is that so many people are clamoring for these biomarkers, clamoring for anything that might give us an indication that we have the disease or how we have the disease. So to move the research forward to the next stage, people are hunting down that marker. Yeah, I think that there have definitely been a few studies showing that Some of these endothelial markers are persistently elevated in patients with long COVID or just found in people who have had COVID months ago. And I think the next question is, is there a direct correlation between those markers and the symptoms of long COVID and and what symptoms? And does it actually mean that the patients are more prone to blood clotting and, and forming small blood clots with continued what we call microvascular thrombosis or blood clots in the small vessels, the ones that actually mediate nutrient and gas exchange. I think that that research is just in its infancy, but it's a priority to try to figure out what's going on. Because there are other explanations as well. Just There can be scarring and fibrosis of the lungs and proliferation of of smooth muscle cells, which can cause impaired gas exchange, even in the absence of blood clots per se. So it's unclear if these markers really reflect clotting or just reflect continued inflammation, things like that. If we look at your clinical experience in thrombosis and vasculitis, the myriad of symptoms that happen in long COVID Have you seen a lot of them previously as a response to that sort of thrombosis? Yeah, it's hard to say. So I think that before we might not have appreciated that symptoms like this could be due to microvascular thrombosis. I think most physicians, when you say blood clot, you think of a deep vein thrombosis or a pulmonary embolism a large blood clot that you can see clearly on on a CAT scan or an ultrasound, and and we give blood thinners to to treat those blood clots and make them go away. But I think that COVID has broadened our perspective to appreciate that microscopic blood clots that we can't see directly without taking a piece of tissue and looking at it under the microscope could contribute to the symptoms that we see in people have active COVID and certainly could contribute to the symptoms that we see in long COVID. So I think physicians still need to figure out how to address a potential clotting issue in their management of long COVID. And that's a, that's a real challenge. 
It is a challenge because I think a lot of doctors much lower down the food chain than you are quite reticent about prescribing anticoagulants because they don't see the D-dimer, they don't see the big clots. But here in the UK, the NHS is under pressure so that we don't have access to all this testing to be able to figure out if we have any endothelial damage or any of these Willebrand factor, whatever, circulating. Well, you know, we don't have it here routinely. It's not part of any routine long COVID workup, I think, outside of the research setting. But hopefully those things may change. One example that has incorporated anticoagulation into its disease management is pulmonary hypertension, which I'm certainly not an expert on pulmonary hypertension, but I I know that, that you've spoken to pulmonologists. And this condition has a lot of similarities in terms of symptoms with long COVID, in terms of the exercise intolerance and fatigue. And it is known that chronic blood clotting maybe clots that are too small to see on a CAT scan, but can be seen on what we call ventilation perfusion scanning of the lung, where we are able to look at the lung in aggregate and how well it's getting blood flow versus how well it's getting oxygenated. And we see ventilation perfusion defects, and we think that small blood clots are contributing to that condition in pulmonary hypertension. And it may be a very similar thing in long COVID. And we do treat these patients with anticoagulation. But it's been challenging enough to show that anticoagulation makes a difference in in regular COVID. There's been extensive trials, and only in the patients who have moderate disease but aren't yet severely ill did it seem like therapeutic anticoagulation uh, moved the needle, and it was a very slight move of the needle. So you know, it's a big deal to go on a blood thinner and how long do you go on it for? And there's certainly side effects. So I'd like to feel like we had more evidence, but it's got to be something that's investigated because I think there are enough similarities between pulmonary hypertension and long COVID and it's certainly a plausible mechanism in terms of continued microvascular thrombosis. That treatment of anticoagulants, is it similar for the larger blood clots and the microclots? Or would it be actually a, a completely different combination of drugs? If you were to treat that, would it be a different combination of drugs? We're asking because there are so many people who are making up their own treatment plans. We're not in the business of recommending drugs or or making those kind of suggestions. So I'm not asking you to give specifics. I'm just asking if it would be the same. Well, it would be the same because actually in medicine, we're not that nuanced with the type of anticoagulation we give. We really only give two types. Uh, there's therapeutic anticoagulation, and there's many different drugs that do that. You could have heparin infusions of unfractionated heparin. You could take low molecular weight heparin injections. You could take warfarin um, or Coumadin, which is the same drug. And then there's novel, now they're called direct oral anticoagulants. That's Eliquis and Xarelto are examples, but they're all compared to each other and it's all sort of one dose. And then there's prophylactic dose anticoagulation that we give to patients who are at risk for blood clots, say a hospitalized patient who's bedbound for a number of days. Oh, is that what people inject in their stomach when they go into hospital? Precisely. And those are really the only two doses of anticoagulation that, that we give. And in COVID, people have played around with intermediate dose anticoagulation and you can envision many different regimens, but I don't think we have much more nuance in terms of an anticoagulant regimen to give. And then you also throw antiplatelet drugs like aspirin or other drugs like Plavix that inhibit platelets. And those have been studied in COVID and in general don't seem to make any difference. This is just an acute COVID. So there's, there's no shortage of different permutations. But I, I do think, independent of COVID, physicians, we, we do need a more nuanced approach to anticoagulation and, and understand that certain scenarios might require higher dosing, certain scenarios might require intermediate dosing, and look for new mechanisms of treating thrombosis, perhaps related to endothelial dysfunction, instead of just all these medications in the end, they just inhibit clotting, but they don't necessarily target the root cause of that clotting. 
But the root cause is not the endothelium itself, is it? It's it's some inflammation somewhere else, or is it? Is it? <laughs> is it the? See, we always want to know what the root cause of our disease is. Well, now you have to define root cause because well, yeah, you, you talk us down the chain of it. How far back do we have to go? Well, that's a great question. I don't know. I don't know the answer, but you're right. There's many layers to the onion, and so. Um, <laughs> Is it the direct viral infection? And and actually, our laboratory is is doing some research that's identifying a viral protein that may directly contribute to blood clotting, and uh, that's called the ORF3A protein. And that was presented at the American Society of Hematology conference in December of 2021. And so that may be a viral intrinsic mechanism that may be unique to, to COVID, but other mechanisms are the cytokines that are released from either immune cells or endothelial cells, cytokines like TNF-alpha, tissue necrosis factor alpha, interleukin-6, um, interleukin-1-beta, and all of these things are known to promote blood clotting. And how? What do they do? So the cytokines, how do they attack the endothelium? So what they do is they sort of reprogram the endothelium to switch from its anticoagulant state to its procoagulant state. All of these proteins that suppress anticoagulation, these cytokines um, basically block their production. So the anticoagulant proteins go down and then the endothelial cells express procoagulant proteins like tissue factor, and they flip lipids on the endothelial surface to allow formation of um, basically allow the clotting enzymes to bind and promote blood clots. And they release von Willebrand factor, as we talked about earlier. They can allow complement factors. These are immune factors that kind of punch holes in, in cell membranes. So you can have complement deposition and all of these things promote blood clotting. All of these things could be a career's worth of research. Um, and, and that's just the, and it's certainly not just the endothelium. So immune cells make these cytokines and immune cells also release tissue factor. You may have heard of this buzzword, neutrophil extracellular traps or NETs. I don't know if that rings a bell at all, but but basically neutrophils, which are other white blood cells, their job is to, they have the cool videos that you can watch of a cell chasing a bacteria around a Petri dish. And they, when they get activated by signals from a bacterium or a cytokines, they actually shoot out their DNA and it forms this net. It's like a sticky net. And, and that is great for trapping bacteria, but it also traps platelets and helps a blood clot form. So researchers have shown that there's a lot of this nets, or it's called netosis, that are formed in the blood clots of patients with COVID-19. So the endothelium is playing a role, but we, we know that other cells are also promoting blood clotting. So I think there's cytokines that are coming from inflammation. There may be direct viral damage to cells it could cause cells to die, and dying cells release a lot of damage factors that are sensed by the endothelium or other immune cells, and it becomes a vicious circle. So root cause is is very hard. It's the focus of maybe everyone's work in this area. <laughs> um, and again, it's hard not to be tunnel visioned on your own area. It gets complicated very quickly. No, but it's interesting because when SARS first hit, it was definitely a respiratory illness. But very soon after, the endothelial damage was like its number two marker for, for what it what the virus can do to us. It's right up there. Absolutely. And there was a really interesting review article by this group, uh, the pulmonary group at Northwestern University in Chicago, that speculated that compared to influenza, which is probably our best example comparator, the receptors for influenza are very dense. And so the virus gets in and activates inflammation and it's more synchronous. So it's all kind of happening at once in a big bang and then it's over. And COVID, the receptor for the SARS-CoV-2 virus is actually much less dense. And so the virus will invade one area and create inflammation, but then more gradually spread to another area. And so you have this dyssynchronous disease course in the lung. And that actually 
increases the total duration of inflammation and inflammatory cytokines that the body is exposed to. And so that longer duration of inflammation may lead to a lot of these chronic changes, the fibrosis, scarring, endothelial dysfunction, clotting. So, you know, I don't know if this has really been tested, but it's uh, certainly an interesting hypothesis about why COVID-19 may be unique. Hadn't heard that one before. We've talked to a lot of people, haven't we, Emily? Yeah. That the virus is less dense. Yeah, the, the receptor for the virus is, is less dense than it is for influenza. So it's more of a slow seep through. Slow it's a slow burn. Yeah. It's a slow yeah. burn. The thrombomodulin that is eaten away and then thrown into our bloodstream, our body does recreate that protein, does it? Absolutely. So, yeah. I mean, all of these proteins we're constantly making and turning over all the time. And so it's just a matter of like the scales are tipped towards having it cut off versus having it kept on, on the cell during um, extreme disease. We do make these things back, but there may be subtle changes in how our blood vessels are wired after this disease to you know, just affect the balance ever so slightly. Not enough that we're severely ill, but enough that things aren't quite right. No, it's just nice to hear that we regenerate some stuff because we did an interview a few weeks ago where we talked about T-cells, which if they're killed, we don't regenerate them. Your endothelium is not designed to turn over that many times. It's not like memory T-cells, which you have forever, but it, it's not designed to be like highly proliferating like, like your GI tract is. So yes, yeah, so you do want to take care of it because <laughs> for the most part, you don't get that many chances to, to renew it. You just mentioned lipids. Yeah. Is that the same as cholesterol? Uh, cholesterol is a lipid. Um, so in, in, in our case, and this is a focus of, of our research, so blood clotting enzymes need to assemble on a membrane. So they're circulating in blood, but they don't work that well in a three-dimensional space. They, they need to be put on a two-dimensional space in order to interact with each other and actually trigger the cascade to form the blood clot. And to do that, they bind to a lipid surface that has a negative charge. It's not cholesterol lipids, it's the phospholipids that are actually make up our cell membranes. And so this negatively charged phospholipid called phosphatidylserine is the, is the biggest one, is actually flipped to the cell surface on endothelial cells or on platelets and other blood cells. And that is what allows clotting enzymes to come together and form a blood clot. And so we study how that process happens in endothelial cells. And it seems like plasma from patients with COVID can promote this phospholipid flipping on endothelial cells. Okay, well, this is probably not, not related then, but I read some research and also from my own personal experience, I had a baseline cholesterol test pre-COVID because I just had my annual then I got COVID and my cholesterol after 12 weeks had gone up by a factor of three significantly. Wow. And it was, I hadn't changed my diet obviously. And it was just, but the cardiologist I was seeing said it could be because of the damage that COVID's done. Yeah. I think that's a very plausible explanation. Your body is really inflamed. It's, it's under attack and synthesis of cholesterol. So LDL cholesterol and, and triglycerides are regulated by some of these inflammatory factors. So I'm very curious to see, that would be something really interesting to study because it may also contribute to all of the cardiovascular disease that we're seeing in this pandemic as uh, we know how LDL affects risk for heart attacks and strokes. And I think that is a, a very interesting explanation. Yeah, it's lucky because I had a baseline. See, so not everybody has their cholesterol done just before they get sick. Uh, stress is is known to contribute. So yeah, it's really interesting. Real disease or, or worrying about disease, they will both drive up your cholesterol. Yeah, my area of speciality in this <laughs> disease is cardiac. So it's affected my heart quite badly, but not in a, any way that you can see on an MRI or anything like that. But I have this inappropriate tachycardia i think as they would say well i think it's microvascular disease and then they wouldn't put me on anticoagulants so i'm on aspirin <laughs> there's so much we don't understand when i say that aspirin didn't work i say it didn't work in in, in reducing acute. in acute covid and reducing you know 
death or hospital or, or increasing disease severity in COVID. But that's an important point is, is when you test an intervention, what is your outcome that you're looking at? Are you looking at forming blood clots or heart attacks or strokes? Are you looking at need to go on a ventilator? Are you looking at death? Are you looking at how far the patient can walk six months after COVID? Yeah, and this is one of the big things with long COVID in general is because we don't have the biomarkers, because the measure of COVID is basically, did you die? Yes or, or no. The good outcome is that you didn't die, but it's, it's a fairly conclusive test. With long COVID, there's so many variables that the, the problem comes, there's no outright, it, it is down to people describing whether their symptoms improved or not. And that's always harder to objectify yeah. in, a, mm-hmm. in a study. And so, you know, we're trying to look at outcomes like like the six-minute walk test, mm. uh, which is how far can you walk in six minutes, basically. Um, and other things, um, you know, there's some vascular parameters. What's a good distance, by the way? I'm going to do it tomorrow. <laughs> oh, well, good luck. No, no, I'm going to do it myself. I'm just going to do it. <laughs> how far can I get? <laughs> well, that's a good measure. You know, everyone's it. different. I think if you can get, you know, above 400 meters, then uh, you're in good shape. But, you know, everyone's got different goals. <laughs> <laughs> I have, uh, I think this might be within your area of expertise, but no one so far has really been able to help me with this. Even today, when I went to pick my son up from school, he looked at me and asked why my arms looked so disgusting because my veins were bulging out. And I have, to my knowledge, I don't have heart complications, but I do have bulging veins. I have pulsatile tinnitus. I have veins that are really prominent that I can feel in places that you can't normally feel them. And I can feel my blood moving around my body. What is that? No, that's a fascinating question. And it it may tie into, so first of all, have you been evaluated for fibromuscular dysplasia at any point? I don't know this. Uh, okay. <laughs> no, I haven't. Write that down for no, you, no one's mentioned it previously. Okay, because pulsatile tinnitus is is very common in patients with fibromuscular dysplasia. FMB is is a rare. We we call it a vasculopathy, and it's thought to be sort of a, a defect in some of the walls of the arteries, and it can affect arteries to the kidneys, arteries in the neck, and some of the arteries in the legs. It can make the arteries more prone to tearing, and sometimes there can be blockages, and that can lead people to have high blood pressure or something. And so I just ask about that because sometimes these predisposing conditions that may be sort of subclinical yeah. in the setting of a stressor like COVID can sort of unmask some of Yeah, all those things we never knew we had. Yeah, and, and, and may never cause any problem. Yeah. But independent of that, there is some data that in young and healthy people that COVID can increase the arterial stiffness in in the short term. And the one study that I saw looked at people, I think three to four weeks after COVID infection. So so many of them were, you know, no doubt better mm. from a nose and, and sort of sinus symptoms and stuff like that. So it, there may be changes in the stiffness of our arteries. And so anytime that you have that more stiffness, there's going to be a, a stronger pulse wave with each pulsation. And you may actually be able to perceive that in that setting when you weren't before. But have you, have you noticed that your blood pressure is higher or that you're... No, I have very, very low blood pressure. What it feels like is it feels like my veins are all too big. Hmm. I have no idea what it is or what causes this. I just know when I lie down to go to sleep at night, I can feel all of the veins and they just feel like they're bulging, but moving relatively slowly. So COVID may dysregulate our ability to vasoconstrict and vasodilate mm. normally. Um, and that is certainly on the spectrum, POTS, of you know what I'm describing. And we know that COVID affects nerves as well, and, and our blood vessels are extremely highly enervated. So it may not be the endothelium per se. It may be the nerves that enervate our blood vessels and, and cause them to dilate inappropriately or constrict inappropriately. That, that could mediate some of those symptoms. Okay. One of my major symptoms is migraines. So I think it is to do with potentially with blood vessel dilation. And, and migraines are also commonly reported in patients with fibromuscular dysplasia. 
it might not be unreasonable to just have a scan of the vessels in your neck and your kidneys just to see if there's any of the beading appearance that is seen in fibromuscular dysplasia. Okay. You know, it, it actually could explain some of your symptoms and maybe was unmasked by COVID. Or it could be completely nothing. But I see this a lot in my practice. Do you? Yes. That's interesting. I've just, I've never heard of it. So I will, I, I've written it down and I will get it checked out. Thank you. You're welcome. I wasn't coming here for some kind of diagnosis. <laughs> we sort of use our personal experience to talk through some of our symptoms because it actually ends up being useful to quite a lot of people. It's it's hard when we're in the unknown. All you can do is just describe how, how you feel. And we don't yet have the nomenclature to codify all of these you know, symptoms into a disease. We're writing the book as we're trying to treat it. So yeah. it's a real challenge. And I, I think we just need to keep working on um, characterizing what people are feeling and, and, and studying what we can. Because you're saying so many interesting things. I'm just going to pick up on, on this arterial stiffness. Do our arteries get stiffer as we get older? Yes. In general? Yes. Yes. Because one of the things that people who have long COVID say, we feel like we've aged considerably. <laughs> So a lot of us will say, like, we feel 10 years older, 20 years older. You know, our bodies feel that way. So it's interesting that you say that COVID can stiffen some arteries. Yes, I, I don't... Because my blood pressure's gone up again. I didn't have blood pressure before. Now I have high blood pressure. We know that people who are older, they, they sort of lose that natural elasticity mm. of their arteries. And so instead of a nice, pliable, rubbery tube, it's a, more of a closer to a pipe. And then each pulse, you feel it more, and and, um, and and it can have effects on, on cognition and, and, and these kinds of things. I mean, I think this is an extreme example. It may also be reversible. I don't want to scare anyone, but I, I think that it, it's possible that COVID, a disease as severe as COVID, could contribute to increased arterial stiffness. Um, awesome. But we need to learn a lot more. <laughs> Shall we... Um... Talk about anything that we can do to help our endothelial. Do you have drugs that can help reverse? Yeah, can you fix us? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I no, I can't. Um, I think that independent of COVID nineteen, I've been really interested in trying to understand how our blood vessels and how our endothelium become dysfunctional and contribute to to these diseases like heart disease or blood clotting. And in our practice, we have. A whole pharmacopoeia, but we really don't have any drugs that target the endothelium per se. And, and so that's, in my mind, a major unmet need is how do we maintain vascular health or restore vascular health? This partly goes back to your question of what's the root cause. So is the root cause that we have continued inflammation and we need to just be targeting the source of inflammation or, or taking broad anti-inflammatories? Or are there specific vascular targets that, that could be addressed? And some of the medicines that are used to treat pulmonary hypertension, I'm totally speculating here, but may be reasonable to investigate in long COVID symptoms, especially in patients who have cardiovascular impairment associated with their long COVID. Do you mean like um, beta blockers or is that what you're talking about? That's not one of... The drugs for pulmonary hypertension per se, but drugs that they're sort of vasodilating drugs and they are designed to improve blood flow in pulmonary hypertension where arteries may be abnormally constricted. So that's one avenue that I'm just speculating could be investigated. So interesting, isn't it? Because that's almost the complete inverse of what I, with long COVID, might need. And so, as you say, we need to get to that root cause of what has specifically caused your type of long COVID. Right. So I would probably need a vasodilator because of my heart. So inappropriate sinus tachycardia, it's a real conundrum because in general, we think of sinus tachycardia as a response to something. That's a normal response, a normal fight or flight response. So I would say, well, your, your body's reacting to something. Then you know, we've labeled it, well, when we can't find anything that your body's reacting to, then we call it inappropriate. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but I think we just haven't found, we're not, we shouldn't stop looking. And you know, beta blockers, that's kind of a band-aid, right? It's just sort of slowing the heart rate 
but it's not addressing the root cause. And so that, that's a that's a real challenge. I think most medicine does just put a Band-Aid on things, don't they? We'll treat your symptoms because we don't know what's causing your syndrome. And then it almost makes it harder to actually find out what is causing the syndrome because once you go and have the tests, your tests are fine because you're on X, Y, and Z drug. No, I agree. Our jobs are complicated and, and We've learned so much in medical school. We have so many tools at our disposal, but we're still in our infancy in terms of, you know, the more we know, the, the more we don't know because yeah. we uncover a host of molecules and cytokines and things that we didn't really know existed a generation ago. But actually how these are interacting, it's just o- opened up a new level of complexity. Yeah, it's that interplay between them, isn't it? When you discover the new thing how it then interacts. Sure. And even the anti-inflammatories are sort of broad anti-inflammatories that may not, you know, there's very few diseases where we know specifically, okay, this molecule is abnormal and then this drug specifically targets it. Those are usually key genetic diseases that we understand at that level of sophistication. But the vast majority of diseases we don't. And so we treat symptoms or we sort of take a, a sledgehammer uh, <laughs> approach. It's true, but it's so refreshing to just hear you like kind of be so frank about it. And also that you're looking for the cause. Like that's really nice to hear. I mean, I'd like to think we're thoughtful and, yeah. and try to understand what's going on and do the best we have, make a decision with limited information, be comfortable with uncertainty. I think that you have to as a, as a physician and it's a challenging thing for patients to understand that that we are mostly operating in uncertainty, but also be modest and humble enough to know that that we really don't know what we're talking about um, <laughs> in this scenario, but we care and and we we're going to study it and try to figure uh, yeah, it out. Yeah, and you're but, trying. I think that's the thing. And making assumptions is uh, you know it's is always a bad idea to try to assume you uh, you understand what's going on. What other conditions have you seen similar endothelial damage in? Yeah, so in what we call uh, sepsis, mm. that's a condition which obviously overlaps with COVID. And that's basically where you um, are severely ill, usually in shock, so very low blood pressure, and your organs start to malfunction mm. um, as a result of either low blood pressure or microvascular dysfunction. And, and we've known that, that there's a lot of endothelial damage in severe sepsis. In fact, some studies have shown probably more similarities to COVID than differences. And, and we looked at this as well, that you know, the endothelium is really damaged in severe sepsis. And so part of this is, well, is COVID-19 unique or is COVID-19 just something that happened to so many people? Mm. We never see this many people with, with sepsis. You know, sepsis at the same time. Is it reversible following sepsis? So that that's another good question as well. We know that COVID-19 is blown the roof off this, but the idea of post-ICU survivorship disorder mm. um, is, is a known thing. So people who have extended stays in an ICU often have chronic illness, myopathy, cardiac lung problems, PTSD, brain fog. So these are all described in people who have spent a long time in an ICU. I'm not an expert in this area, but, but there are people who devote their research and, and careers to, to managing people. I think the question in COVID is that if there's something unique to COVID that's causing this to happen in more people or to develop in people who never had severe ICU level disease in the first place. Yeah, which is what um, we, the, most of the people that we speak to did not have severe disease. Yeah, I think that's a real mystery and suggests that there may be something in, indeed with COVID that the way it affects our organs, perhaps our nervous system in ways that other diseases don't. Uh, other viral illnesses don't, that, that could be responsible. But the, the endothelial dysfunction in sepsis is very well established and even got to the point where there was a drug that targeted one of these anticoagulant proteins on endothelial cells. And it got approved, but then it turned out that actually, no, it never really worked in the first place. And so we went back to uh, square one, but really like a, a decade and or two decades ago, this was a, a hot area that we're looking at the endothelium and, and blood clotting on the endothelium in sepsis. So I think COVID has sort of rekindled the importance of that in studying these diseases. So no, no cure. <sighs> Not reversible? Reversible? Um, 
I, I, I just don't know, but I, I... Have you seen anyone who had endothelial damage who now doesn't have endothelial damage across the board? Yes, absolutely. I've seen plenty of patients who were severely ill with either sepsis or COVID and are largely fine now. And I, I think that some of these more subtle aspects of long COVID are, are really tricky. And I, I, don't, I don't think anything, you know, we can't assume that anything is irreversible because we certainly see people make improvements. We just, it might be because we don't understand what's causing it or we haven't tried the right treatment, whether that be a drug or a type of physical therapy. But I think we have to maintain an open mind and maintain hope because humans are incredibly adaptable and really with persistence, I think we can accomplish anything. I think I found it really interesting that we could look at other clues to damage to our endothelium, like the von Willebrand factor, which is another test that we can do that we don't have to travel across continents to try and get the, a test for this. We can get it done in our hospital or our local cardiology centre. If you can get an appointment. <laughs> All right, Killjoy. It's nice to know that there are other things that we can do within traditional medicine. We can go to our doctor and say, or our cardiologist and say, can you check me for this? Instead of sounding really out there on a limb by saying, here's some new research, please go read up about it. Yeah. I need a test for microclots. This and is an established test. This is an established test. Do I have elevated von Willebrand factor? Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm always just delighted when we speak to these people who are taking so much time and interest in researching and trying to develop strategies for, for long COVID and trying to repurpose their former strategies for long COVID. Yeah, and Dr. Schmeyer was like so honest about some of the things. Like, we don't know when you ask him a straight question. We can have theories, but we don't know. We'd love to find out, and people are working on it. Great. Great. And we do have so many people working on it. I know that people are incredibly frustrated, but there are so many incredible people working on this right now. And Dr. Schmeyer said he is now part of future long COVID studies and, and research that requires looking specifically at the endothelium. So he looks looking at it through his lens. And everybody's looking at it through their lens. If you're looking for clots, you're going to find clots. If you're looking for vagus nerve damage, you're going to find vagus nerve damage, I think, is what I've come to conclude after speaking to all these people. Yeah. And it takes people like Alex Schmeyer to have that pragmatism. I just keep going back to what Alex Richter said about the epiphenomenon. That's yeah. so key. Are we seeing something that we want to see or is it just something that would be there anyway? Is it relevant? Is it a coincidence? And I think you and I kind of live in this really good news bubble almost where we talk to people who are working hard in the field so we don't come across as many people dismissing us, which I think a lot of yeah. our fellow long haulers are coming across, which is disheartening and I totally empathise and it's horrifying to hear some of these stories, but we kind of are super positive because we speak to all these people who are, you know, are working so hard. Super positive, but still very much aware of the reality of what this has done to our bodies and our lives. Um, yeah. So just try, try to stay positive. Yeah, everyone should try and stay positive. Join us next week as we hear others' experiences of long COVID. Share your stories and questions at tlcsessions.net. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram for the latest updates. And if you found this interesting, please do subscribe. <laughs>